Give us, Father, confirmation. Give us comfort, Lord. Conviction, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we all said, amen, amen. Awesome. You guys may say hi to one another, and then you guys can take a seat. Beautiful. A few announcements this morning. Uh, we are continuing our, our men's studies on, on Friday nights. Last week we had a really, uh, this past Friday, a really cool time. Uh, get together, fellowship, a little bit of cookies and coffee is always nice. And uh, we were diving into the, the book of Ephesians. And we're learning right now a lot. We're going to see of doctrine and of what Paul was writing to the Ephesian church. So if you guys are men... Uh, come on out, and uh, if you'd like to join us in that Bible study. Also with that, if you guys, um, one thing I, I want to offer to you guys, if you would like to give to Redeem Church Fellowship, uh, Redeem Church, we do not ask for money, but the Lord puts it on people's hearts to give, and we will receive. If that's something that you feel this is a place that you call your home, if you're just visiting, don't worry about this. This is just for a place where people have been blessed and they want to give back to the Lord. We do have ways to do that. Uh, you can give in the agape box in the back of the fellowship hall. It's the white box that says prayer and offering. And along with that, there is a, um, you can pay through Zelle also if you would like to give that way, which is a, a chase application uh, to redeemchurchf at gmail.com. Uh, so those are some ways we're doing that. Also, uh, we're going through the book of Luke. We've been going through the book of Luke. Uh, so if you guys have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. We've been studying the Gospel of Luke for uh, some time now, and we're right in the middle. If you guys are, are visiting, we're right in the middle uh, of Jesus' life ministry here on this earth. He's already gathered the 12 disciples to himself. Last week we skipped ahead a little bit and we were learning about the cost of discipleship. And that was at the end of chapter 9. But to make sure that we cover the entire chapter 9, I'm going to jump back to what we haven't read yet. With the beginning of chapter 9, and I titled my study today, The Road to Discipleship. Because this is a journey that all of us are on. And thank God he's given us examples of the disciples in the gospel where we realize that they themselves were knuckleheads as well. First, we see that the disciples are called. So let's begin with Luke's gospel, chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. It says, Then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons, and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So he's gathered now these 12 chosen men to himself. And now he sends them out into the mission field. 
The idea is that there is an important factor to being trained for the work of the Lord. You see, we must not be so hasty to place ourselves in in leadership or to place another person in leadership before they're ready. Now, there's different ministries out there who teach and practice placing a person into service in that church in order to promote faithfulness and trust in that person's life. You're going to find that at Redeemed Church Fellowship, we don't do it that way. You see, the Bible teaches that faithfulness and trust should be built first before a a person is put into ministry. It's not the opposite. We don't try to make a person grow by committing them to ministry. We first allow that person to grow and then they commit to a ministry. The second thing I notice is that these disciples, they were to carry the message of salvation, the hope of the promised Messiah, the one they call the Christ. They were spreading the kingdom of God. If you guys remember, that was one of Jesus' favorite things to teach about was the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is likened unto this, Jesus would say. The kingdom of God is likened unto a field, unto a tree, So the disciples are now learning how to teach what Jesus taught. They're following after him in his footsteps. Now coupled with their teaching and their preaching, we do see miracles taking place. The miracles pointed to the truth that what they were preaching was true. There was evidence now because people were being healed. And some people needed that evidence in their life. They needed that touch from the Lord. We learned about the woman who had the infirmity for 12 years. And she just reached out because she believed that if I just touch the hem of Jesus' garment, I will be healed. And she acted in faith. And that, re- that faith it received a response. She was healed. The preaching of the kingdom should always be the priority of the church. Even over community outreach. Now I'm praying that we would grow to be able to to go out there into the streets of Glendora and to be doing work. And I see the work. I see, amen. You know, there are homeless people right around this area, right here. The other day, a a man was laying outside front and I I just left a water bottle for him because I didn't know where he was at. He was asleep, but I knew that when he woke up, he would see somebody left a water bottle for him. But I'm not going to leave the teaching of God as priority in order to have community outreach. I have to have that balance. You see, the ministry, as I teach the word, and as we learn from it, you guys become the ministers. You guys begin to serve and to grow. And the sheep beget the sheep. In verse 3, it says, And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. So Jesus is telling them at this point, you need to travel light with 
uh, safe methods. They, he didn't want them to have, to have a lot of money. And a, a big portion of this is to do this all by faith, not to trust on their riches. It's interesting that the particular things he told them not to have, the staff, the bag, the money. In their culture, rabbis, there was a rule that whenever they would enter the temple area, that they were to remove their staff, their shoes, their money bag, because they wanted to avoid the appearance of being engaged in any other business than the service of the Lord. And this is now what the disciples are told to do, to focus on what the Lord has called them to. In verse 4, he says, Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. You see, the disciples here were to live off of those who were willing to give. We see the importance of that love offering in ministry. Me personally, I, like Paul, try to work a full-time job so that I don't have to ask the church for funds for my living. And that was what Paul did. He had his tent-making ministry, where as he would go out and do ministry, there'd be times in his life where he would pick up that tent-making occupation, that trade, so that he wouldn't have to ask the church for the funds. So we don't ask for money. The disciples here would not force the kingdom of God onto anyone they went to. You see, sometimes as believers, we take that rejection a little too personal. If a believer, if a non-believer rejects the Lord and his kingdom, we must not confuse it for them rejecting us. You see, it's God they're rejecting. So Jesus just told his disciples just to shake it off. You know, we have friends and family members who are lost. And if we get frustrated with them that they're not walking with the Lord, I'm reminded of Moses when he would get angry with the Israelites and they'd complain. They'd be like, Moses, we're out here in the desert. We're hungry. Let us go back to Egypt. And he would get angry and he would strike the rock because they needed water. And God told him, hey, go speak to the rock and water is going to come out of the rock. But Moses in his anger, because he was angry with the people complaining, he went out there with his staff and he hit the rock and the water came out. And then God said, Moses, step into my office for a second. Moses, you showed anger to the people today. And the people think that I'm angry with them because of the way you responded. Because of this, Moses, you're not going to be able to go into the promised land. You see, Moses misrepresented God to the people so be careful not to misrepresent God to your friends, your family members, your coworkers. God loves them and desires that they would have a relationship with him. Pastor Dale Goddard taught me to have tough skin and soft hearts. See, we could take the blows from people's remarks, tough skin, but we ourselves need to have soft hearts and compassion towards the people. In verse 6, it says, So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. You know, it's an awesome thing, uh, missions, missions work. 
I got to experience going down to Colombia, South America, for children's ministry, youth ministries, doing testimonies at, at schools. I, I don't speak Spanish, so I had to have an interpreter there. My family knows this. <laughs> but we strengthened the churches that were already existing there as well. And one of the coolest moments I experienced was actually in Peru. We were in this little village in Bucalpa, which is almost a slum. And we were speaking with one of the, the ministers there, and we were asking how we could pray for him. And what were the issues that were going on there in Peru and in, in the churches? And he said, you know, the churches here, there's so many churches but they're so divided against each other, so divided against one another. And we joined arms with him and we prayed for that very thing, that the Lord would bring a, 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 un, a unity amongst the churches that were there. There is something to missions work when you go out in the mission field. Because you think, well, well why? My, I have the missionary field here in my backyard, which is true, we do. And God doesn't call all of us to have to go out. We could pray for a missions work. But there's something awesome when a person who is a foreigner goes into a foreign country because suddenly the people who are there don't recognize this person. They're like, who, who is this foreign person? He talks kind of funny. And suddenly you have their attention. And when you take that step of faith and you go out into the missions field, sometimes you just see because you're taking that step of faith, it puts a new perspective on what God can do and you suddenly see God opening doors out there in the mission field that sometimes you kind of overlook here at home. So I do encourage missions work. And I pray one day we have a mission field. In verse 7, it says, Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of all that was done by him. and He was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. My second point here, we see here what a false disciple is. We saw with the disciples how they were called, but now we see what a false disciple is. In verse 9, Herod said, John I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. Why was Herod interested in seeing Jesus? See, Herod sought Jesus, but not for the right reasons. Herod desired to see some miraculous thing happen, but he did not desire Jesus himself. Later in the gospel, we remember that when Christ was put on trial, beaten, had a bag over his head. They took him to Herod. They said, let Herod deal with him. He'll know what to do. And Herod begged Jesus. He said, perform a miracle for me. I just want to see. And Jesus remained silent before Herod. See, Herod was a false disciple. He wasn't seeking Jesus in a form of worship. Herod Antipas was actually a very wicked governor. That's the word tetrarch. When we read that, that's literally what it means. It's, it's a governor. I just found that out last night. I kid you not. <laughs> he divorced his wife to marry Herodias, who was his brother's half, I'm sorry, who was his half-brother's wife. 
So he had a half-brother, and he stole his wife from him. Her name was Herodias. Herodias would end up having a daughter, Salome, who would dance for Herod in this disgusting sexual way, so much so that Herod would offer to this girl, he would say, I'll give you anything you want up to half the kingdom. He was a dirty man. So the daughter went to her mom, Herodias, and she said, what should I ask Herod for? And the mom told her, ask him for John the Baptist's head on a silver platter. So the little girl went back and asked for that very thing. And Herod, because he had a bunch of leaders and men around him, felt sorrowful that he had offered such a thing. But because of his embarrassment, he said, all right. And John the Baptist was beheaded. You see, Herod was wicked. The reason why she wanted John the Baptist dead was because John the Baptist was preaching against the very thing that they had committed, that adultery, that fornication. So we must not seek Jesus for what he can show us or do for us. We must seek Jesus himself. And he will show you many things. In our next portion we have what I like to call learning disciples. See, these disciples, they had some struggles. Look at verse 10. It says, And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place, belonging to the city of Bethsaida. See, right here, Jesus and his disciples They've been doing ministry. They're going out. And sometimes, not sometimes, a lot of times, ministry is tiring. So Jesus and his disciples now were returning to get a little bit of R&R, some private time, some fellowship, perhaps to even share the things that they had experienced in the mission field. And they wanted to share them with Jesus. They wanted to be rejuvenated. But something happens. Look at verse 11. It says, but when the multitudes knew it, they followed him and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. So now as the disciples, they leave Capernaum, they're with Jesus and they want to get alone for some R&R. They're like, okay, let's get on this boat and we'll go away from everybody and we'll go across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now the problem in Israel with the Jews, is that they like to title things a lot bigger than what they really are. The Sea of Galilee is actually not a huge sea. It's more of like a big lake. So when they got in that boat and started journeying across it, every, all the multitudes could see the boat. They're like, okay, there's the boat. Uh, uh, they're on the other side. Go that way, go that way. And then they start running, and they're running to the other side. And as people see like people running, they're like, hey, hey, what are you doing? They're like, Jesus is going that way. They're like, okay, I'll come with you. And then they start, everyone starts running now so that by the time they get to the other side of the lake, the multitudes are just amassed before them. Now, a large crowd met Jesus and his disciples there when they were seeking to be alone. 
For some of us, this could be a very frustrating thing, perhaps being overwhelmed. But what do we see Jesus doing? It says he received them, he speaks to them, and he healed them. He receives the lost, he receives the broken and the weary. He speaks to them salvation, he speaks to them about freedom, he speaks to them about, about hope and eternity. He even heals their physical infirmities, their spiritual snares, and their emotional wounds. In Matthew's gospel, on the same account, Matthew writes, Jesus, when he saw the great multitude, was moved with compassion toward them. Do we have that compassion in, the, in our life for people? When, when that, that person calls us who we know they're going through that, that trial, are we like, oh man, silence, silence the phone. I'm not picking up today. No. We need to have compassion. In verse 12, when the day began to wear away, the 12 came and said to him, send the multitudes away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions for we are in a deserted place here. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. You see, sometimes when there is a need in our life, we look at what the Lord has placed in front of us and we think about all the different ways of how this problem can get fixed in our own strength. Often we forget that God does not need us to have his work performed. In this very building, when me and Lisette first came here, we looked at it, and I was like, yeah, yeah, this is cool. And then Lisette saw the restroom and said, nope, this is not cool. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but, look, but like, it just needs a little like, bit of like TLC, you know, and the Lord, the Lord. And thankfully, the Lord did soften Lisette's heart, and that restroom is now the prettiest looking room in this entire building. You see, notice these 12 disciples. They were so ready to cast the burden of these people and their, their hunger onto the neighboring cities. But Jesus told them, you give them something to eat. This compassion must be present in our life. It is not always easy to have compassion for people. In fact, it's very difficult to love on people, and it's very easy to not want to serve them. But this is the calling that Jesus has for his disciples. In verse 14, For there were about 5,000 men. Then he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so, and made them all sit down. Now some estimate, that with 5,000 men, there may have been between 10 to 15,000 people because they didn't list the women and the children here. In verse 16, then he took the five loaves and two fish. 
and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and twelve baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. See, with what little they had, Jesus thanked God for it. He thanked God the Father for the food that this boy had given them, and the disciples began to pass it out, and the food multiplied. So much food that it says they were filled, and that word for filled, it means they were glutted, they were stuffed. Thanksgiving night when you have to unbuckle your pants stuffed. See, God can open up the windows of heaven to feed his children. You see, this is a miracle. Now, you might hear of some weird tradition that some skeptics teach on this miracle. There's a false narrative. Some have said that the way it really went down is that this little boy had some loaves and, and some fish, and that was all he had. But when he brought it forth to Jesus and said, this is all I have, I give it to you, that the rest of the multitudes were moved with compassion, and they all had food in their pockets. So they began to empty out their pockets, and everyone just started sharing the food abundantly. It's false. And I have nothing to do with that. This is a miracle, and we must not take away from the miracles in the Bible. In verse 18, I have here a disciple has a vision. It says in verse 18, And it happened, as he was alone praying, that his disciples joined him. And he asked them, saying, who do the crowd say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah. And others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. The Messiah of God, the Savior of the world. Matthew in his gospel he records in this account, Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, at this point, Jesus is challenging his disciples to say outright who they personally believe Jesus is. Who does the world say that Jesus is? A myth? A religious fanatic? A prophet? Simply a misunderstood man? There's an author, you guys have heard of him, C.S. Lewis, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He was also a, a Christian. He writes about this idea of Jesus being either liar, lunatic, or Lord. In his book called Mere Christianity, I quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must, not, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He did not leave us open to that. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. You see, Jesus said that he was equal with God. So you don't say that unless you're crazy or a liar or your Lord. Now, this is who Jesus is. And you may even believe Jesus is God. But I ask you this morning, who is Jesus to you? What does Jesus mean in your life? Do you let this truth of who Jesus is impact your daily living see it's one thing to know who jesus is the bible says even the demons know and tremble who jesus is but to believe in faith to obey to be a disciple of christ to die to yourself it's a whole other thing in verse 21 it says and he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. See, Jesus knew here that his time had not yet come. So though this was revealed to him, he told Peter and the disciples, look, don't tell this yet. Perhaps the excitement of Jesus proclaiming to be Messiah to the multitudes may have brought on that faster execution and it wasn't Jesus' time. He says, my time has not yet come. The crowds wouldn't have understood why their seemingly, what they believed, political Messiah, freedom from Rome, would have been killed. And then from verse 22, I have to ask, why did Jesus have to suffer? Why must the Son of Man suffer many things? See, this is something that Peter struggled with. Peter said, Jesus, he pulled him aside. He's like, what are you doing? You're making the disciples mad and sad. You can't, tell, you can't talk about death, right? Jesus, you're going you're gonna to reign. You're going to rule. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but you are mindful of the things of man. And it's funny because Peter just had this vision of who God was. He's like, you are the son of God. And then he pulls him aside. What are you doing, Jesus? You see, and that's how we are at times. In one moment, we have the, the vision of the Lord in our life, and in the next moment, we're putting our foot in our mouth. Thank God 
and Jesus that they're patient with us. But why did Jesus have to suffer? See, I believe the simple answer to this is that because of God's love for us, he offered his son in judgment for our sins. But I believe that that question goes so much deeper. See, as an honest skeptic, putting my sho- myself in the shoes of a non-believer, I wonder why God didn't create a universe without suffering. And when I fall into those hard questions, without having complete knowledge on the matter, I have to fall back on what I do know. What I know is true about my God. See, I know that God is all-powerful. I know that he is all-knowing, that he is all-wise, that he is all-just, he is all-loving, he is all-good. When you study the attributes of God, you realize that whatever God is, he's 100% of it. If God is good, he's all-good. There's no evil in him. If God knows, he is all-knowing. So then I trust him and I continue to grow in my knowledge of who God is in my life. So when I find myself in those hard areas of struggle and those questions, I fall back on the truth of who God is in my life. I'm going to read verses 23 through 27 because I want you guys to prepare your hearts and minds uh, next week when we do get into it a little deeper. I don't want to rush through these next verses because it's important about the death to self, a self-denying disciple. In verse 23, it says, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come to me after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and his fathers and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now this is beautiful. And this is hard. Because it's not easy to die to ourselves. The Lord calls us. And when Jesus calls us, he bids us come and die. Jesus went to the cross. And then he told his disciples that we ourselves must take up our cross daily. This is something that I fail in every day. So I have to ask the Lord, Lord, help me. Help me to die to myself, to put you first in all things, in all ways. And as we begin to grow in this discipleship to Christ, you see, that's something I want to express. When, when I speak of discipleship here, not everyone is called to lead a ministry but we're all called to be disciples of Christ and that takes death and suffering 
Do you guys know how to suffer? Do we, when we're on the operating table and the Lord is doing work on our heart, do we try to say, okay, that's it, I'm done. I don't want to work anymore on, on my heart, Lord. You're going too deep with that blade there. Or do, you, do we allow God to have his complete and full work in us through the Holy Spirit? May we not take ourselves off of that operating table. But may we join in discipleship. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? We only have one life and it will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help us, Father, to be your disciple, to be a disciple of Christ, Father, to have vision, to not be false, to seek you for you alone. We need this in our day-to-day life, Lord. I pray for the people in this room, Lord, that you would Bless them with spiritual blessing, with gifts, Father, with discernment. May we impact, Lord God, the lives that you've placed before us. I pray, Father, for the city of Glendora. Father, I lift up to you those people who you are calling, Lord, and ask that you would draw them in by your Spirit. May we have compassion, Lord, May we have vision. May we deny ourselves, Lord. And may you give us that new life in Christ. We love you, Father. If this morning you desire that in a unique way, that that help of the Holy Spirit, if you've been struggling in your discipleship with Christ and you just need that Holy Spirit power to do what the Lord you believe is calling you to, just raise your hand right now. And Father, I pray for those who have raised their hand. I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower them, Father. Like the disciples, Lord, may they wait upon you. May that overcoming power of the Holy Spirit fill them. May they live that purpose-filled life in Christ. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, let's all stand. Well, we'll see you guys, the men, on Friday night. And we'll see you, everyone else next Sunday. Eventually, we will have a a Wednesday night service, but that's not yet. So keep that in prayer. But may the Lord bless you and keep you this week. May he shine his countenance upon you, be gracious unto you, and give you peace.
falling from the clouds Strange and love the sound I hear it in the thunder and the rain It's ringing in the skies Like cannons in the night The music of the universe plays What's singing? You are holy Great and mighty The moon and the stars Declare who you are I'm so unworthy But still you love me Forever my heart Will sing of how great you are All glory, honor, power is yours Amen All glory, honor, power is yours Amen All glory, honor, power is yours Forever, amen We're singing Great and mighty The moon and the stars Declare who you are I'm so unworthy But still you love me Forever my heart Will sing of how great Singing you are holy Great and mighty The moon and the stars declare who you are. I'm so unworthy, but still you love me. Forever my heart will sing of how great you be blessed this week. We love you guys and we'll see you on Friday and Sunday morning.